Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivutani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Mike Waldron, who's the Dean of the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University and CEO of ECU Health. He brings a wealth of experience to the role, having served as a senior leader at both the University of Arizona Health Network and the University of Alabama Hospital at Birmingham. Dr. Waldrum also serves on the board of the Association of American Medical Colleges and was named chair-elect of the Council of Teaching Hospitals and Health Systems for the association in 2020. He's a specialist in critical care medicine and pulmonology and is trained in internal medicine. So Dr. Waldrum, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Great to be here, Shiv. I appreciate the opportunity. For sure. And so as we do with all of our guests, we want to give you an opportunity to tell us a bit more in your own words, what got you interested in a career in medicine, and then particularly why you chose pulmonology and critical care medicine. Yeah, well, I came at it as a young person. I My parents moved around a lot. My father was with Eli Lilly and Company for 36 years, and we moved around quite a bit. And I went to the end of elementary school and junior high in Rochester, Minnesota, as he was sent there to open a district office in Rochester. And as a young person, being surrounded by physicians and other healthcare professionals in a rural community, it was just transformative for me. It was unbelievable. I lived on Mayowood Road. I knew a number of the Mayo family. And to see what that organization did in this rural northern community in Minnesota was incredible. So it just was something as a young person that I said became very interested in that. And I was interested in it because I could make a living taking care of people, which was just an unbelievable opportunity that I still have so much respect for and love for. But I also was very interested in how that thing happened and and the system of care. And we'd have family or people would come in to get care and I would wheel them around the clinic and things like that. And I was just really fascinated about how that worked and how did that happen. So I came at it really as a young person, very interested in operations management and how healthcare systems come together to affect care and also how do you take care of people. And so that led me to study humanities because I wanted to learn about people and as an undergrad, as an English major, but I was a pre-med English major with the intention of becoming a physician and then getting in the administration side of the business also. And as I progressed, the reason that I was interested, I think, in in pulmonary medicine and critical care specifically, becoming an intensivist was as I got experience, one of my first jobs, actually my first job, I was a night shift orderly in a hospital. And back in those days, we don't use the word orderly anymore, but back in those days, one of my jobs was to to take care of, of people and often elderly men at during the dying process. And so at age 18, got exposed to death, which I'd never really been exposed to. And that led to kind of, a, well, if I'm going to take care of people, I need to help them not die. And as an intensivist, you're right there at the interface where people need highly intensive care and they're trying to actively die. And so if I was going to provide care, I felt that that was the point to to drive the highest value. And I also really enjoyed the diversity of 
being an intensivist. It's really internal medicine and the intensive care unit. So it's very broad with all of the systems affected. And so I love that. And I loved also the the procedural aspect of critical care medicine. And then lastly, during that time, and had so many great mentors, and I've heard your podcast, this is a common thing, right? You, It's who you get an opportunity to work with. And I've had, through multiple tracks, had so many great opportunities to be mentored by leaders. But one of the first ones was a pulmonary critical care doc that was an administrator and chief of staff at UAB Hospital for over 30 years. And he was Dr. Derwood Bradley who was really very influential in my decision-making. Wow, yeah, you've touched upon a, a number of threads that I'm definitely going to be pulling on throughout the rest of the conversation, one of which I'll highlight to our audience is the fact that you also had experience working at an early age as, as, you, as an orderly and getting exposed to medicine, because I think it's those experiences that not only help shape one's commitment to the profession, but also, you know, give you maybe more empathy for the rest of the healthcare workers and, and workforce in a health system, which I'm sure has been valuable, not only in your role as a physician, but also as a leader of an entire health system. I did want to let you touch upon that, but I did want to also transition into the leadership hat, because you've obviously had an extensive leadership background. So is that something that you kind of always were gravitating towards, or did it sort of just kind of occur because of serendipity? Well, I I think that as a physician, I was always interested in being engaged in the environment on how healthcare worked, as I mentioned, understanding these really complex organizations and actually how do we come together to affect care. And so I was always interested in that. And I've always felt that one of the professional obligations as a physician was to be engaged in how organizations work. I was when I was a resident at Mayo, I, I was in what was called MBREC, the Graduate Education Leadership Group, and was involved in how graduate education worked. And so just always involved because I love solving complex problems and working in diverse groups. And so that was just natural. I didn't have a goal on what exactly. I never thought I would be a dean CEO. I'll just tell you as a young professional, that was never in the plan. But I've just enjoyed working and engaging in organizations and solving complex problems with these incredible professionals that we have this opportunity to work with that are always bright, insightful, and caring humans. And and that just led to different opportunities. And so it's been a great path that I, I think is part of the, the beautiful thing about being in our profession is lifelong learning which opens doors. And I mentor a lot of young professionals and I, I, I tell them what I was told, just get experience, go and immerse yourself in the environment and, and start learning and opportunities will present themselves to you. And you'll have a great career giving, caring for people and getting something back, which is knowledge and growth and opportunity for yourself. So it's just, it's a circular kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in, in roles like yours, whether it's as a physician or a leader or both, you have a lot of leverage to have, have that impact and scale scale of impact. So, you know, you've you've had leadership positions at University of Alabama, University of Arizona, and, and other places. We like to give any dean we have on the podcast the opportunity to talk about what makes their present institution so special. So can you give us a bit more background about ECU and the Brody School of Medicine? 
Yeah, ECU Health and Brody School of Medicine. So we're in this unique area. Part of my passion is academic organizations and safety net organizations. And my whole career after my training at Mayo was really being in academic safety net organizations, which have, I think, unique responsibility and a unique position in the United States, really important organizations to communities and with with unique and difficult challenges. And so I like complex problems. I like working on these systemic complex issues. And so that's what led me to come to Eastern North Carolina. We cover a geographic area the size of Maryland. People aren't really familiar with the coastal plains of North Carolina, but it's a huge geography. And our organization serves this large geography and is is really the safety net anchor institution across this region. And part of that is the academic component, which is the Brody School of Medicine, and which is a great organization whose mission is was created to primarily educate primary care physicians to take care of North Carolinians, to improve the health and well-being of this region and to offer medical education to diverse populations. And so it's got this great heritage of actually living that, those values and making those things come to life. And so this massively underserved area of generations for generations, we've shown that we've normalized many of the health outcomes to match the state where 20 years ago we were far behind and primarily with a community-based focus and taking kids only from North Carolina that we know have a propensity to want to practice in the environments that we're here to serve. And so that's kind of our, our sauce. That's how we do it. And we keep our tuition low intentionally. So financial concerns don't become the concern on training. And that leads to a high proportion of our graduates going into primary care fields. And I always call it the highest value medical school in the country. It's a great place with a great culture and it lives its mission every day. And so that's what we do at ECU Health and at Brody. And we're all about community engagement and improving the health and well-being of our communities through our education and learning objectives. So it's 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 a really fun place. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. Those are some themes that we've definitely touched upon of how do you strengthen the primary care kind of safety net across obviously North Carolina, but the entire U.S. We've all seen those reports around kind of the unequal distribution of healthcare resources that's only getting worse, it seems, and the pandemic made it made it worse. Just last week, Becker's Hospital Review released us an article about the fact that nearly 300 rural health systems are at risk of closure, including seven in, in North Carolina and 17 in Texas and among other places. I was wondering, you know, can you comment a bit about ideas you have for ways we could maybe strengthen the healthcare system? Like, how are you training your future physicians at Brody? You mentioned primary care as a focus, community engagement as a focus, but what are some other ideas or, or additional ideas you have for ways we can address kind of this big issue? Well, it's a huge issue. And, you know, if you study demographics, it's only going to get worse. And so I think the the issues we face are, it's going to take us a long time to get out of them. And we're going to have to have very intentional plans and systematic changes. 
and we're going to have to transform. The delivery system has to transform to drive value. And I think, you know, how do we actually get in front of illness and and create a system that decreases the burden? We have a huge burden of disease in Eastern North Carolina, which is one of the issues with rural populations. And so there's it's multi-tiered. The answer to your question is multi-tiered technologies running our system over the 30 counties from a systematic perspective. So we're not a we're not a holding company model. We're an operating company model. All of our clinics and hospitals are on the exact same instance of electronic record. And so we can use that data to model where needs are and anticipate needs and intervene early, which we did a lot during the pandemic, but we can do the same thing with diabetes and cancer and and understand our population very intimately because we live in this environment and we're connected to our communities. And then educating physicians to work in, in, in environments like that and creating new access capabilities for our patients. But an, an example of it would be rural residency training program. We started a, a few years ago. The first cohort is coming out of it. But, you know, we were looking at, I was actually in one of our rural environments, Hoski, North Carolina, which was one of the first Hill Burton hospitals was ever built in the country, was in Hoski, North Carolina. And I was in that community seven years ago, meeting with community leaders. And they were talking about how basically executives have led, left those communities. So if you look at rural communities, the people that are left are really the school superintendents, the people in the education sector, the elected officials, and then the help local healthcare organization. And so those are really where the thought has to come from. And so we started talking about how do we create a rural residency training program to educate family medicine doctors that become the leaders for com those communities to promote health and well-being for those communities. And so that health and well-being is driven through economic opportunities, so driving local economies, to improving education and 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 improving healthcare, and so these these specially selected residents that have a propensity to want to live in rural environments, so they come from rural environments. Then we educate them to become community leaders and family practice physicians, so they can engage in those communities to improve these rural environments. North North Carolina has the second largest rural population in the country. We serve a third of that. Texas has the largest. And so that's really our space. And we're really excited. We're, we're hopeful to expand our rural residency training programs. The first cohort came, graduated, and out of four, we already signed two to stay in the communities that they were trained in. And so these folks, professionals, are have a passion for those environments, and then we train them and help them be successful in those environments. So it's that's just one example of same kind of work on nursing. And so it's it's a multi-tiered approach, a systematic-based approach to solving these really difficult changes in healthcare. Transformation is not for the weak of heart. Change is difficult. And I, I I really loved a lot of your podcasts and talking to younger professionals. And I'll just tell you that I was told by my father not to become a doctor. And and I said, Devil, why is that? And he said, because all the doctors, and so this is in the low in the late 70s, that all my friends hate all my friends that are doctors hate medicine. 
And so I don't want you to go into it. And I'll tell you, I tell this story a lot because I hear that same theme. And my father said, I only support you to go through it if you interview 10 doctors and find out why. And so I did that. And there were two themes that came out. And one was, it's not what it used to be, or it's not what I thought it was going to be. And if you really think about that, I hear that message a lot from physicians and, and, and healthcare professionals. But you know what? The beautiful thing about medicine is that it's never what it used to be because we're in constant evolutionary learning cycles. And so if you come into it thinking that it's going to stay the same, it's going to transform and we're actively transforming and doing it in a way that makes sure that we support our providers in that system. And so being very cognizant of the the issues that our doctors, nurses and other professionals face and making environments that are healthy for them. And so it's it. And it's never what you think it's going to be, right? It's this is a great, a great industry and there's so much opportunity. So it's never what anybody really thinks it's going to be. So, so we're, we're just looking at how do we transform our delivery system? And so, and make sure that we live our mission, which is to improve the health and well-being of Eastern North Carolina. I will also say that that's not can't be just by ourselves, right? We need Medicare, Medicaid, the insurance industry, and others as partners in how we transform. And so we just build relationships and and start having those difficult conversations across the different domains of the value chain in healthcare. Yeah, no, that that's really astute and it's interesting. I'm glad you shared that story about your father asking you to interview 10, 10 physicians because, you know, it's what they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure as heck rhymes. Because even when I when I was telling my friends and even my family that I was going back to med school, many of them were like, why? <laughs> you know, it's not, are you going to actually practice? It's not not what it used to be, as you said. And that's that's partially it is like, I think we can create create a better future for patients and also the healthcare providers. I have to ask you about, you know, one of the reasons it seems doctors are burned out, obviously payment models, but also, you know, one thing that's often cited is documentation, the burden of billing and coding and, you know, insurance denials. And over the last six, seven months, clearly there's been a lot of excitement around artificial intelligence, you know, just up the road from you guys at UNC Health, they're doing some collaborations with Epic Health on releasing some of these large language model driven interventions to reduce the administrative burden that doctors face. I'm just curious, what what are your thoughts as a physician, as a leader? Is ECU doing anything here that you want to share? And then how do we train? How do you how are you training Brody students to be aware of these changes and hopefully, you know, maybe even be part of part of affecting those changes? Yeah, well, it's it's a really exciting time. You may have noticed that part of my so I was trained also as an epidemiologist. And when I was young, that was all about understanding data. And I became I was his chief information. I was CMIO before that term was invented and then a CIO for, for five years. So it was in the technology space for over eight years of my career and and was very instrumental in implementing EHRs throughout that time and throughout my history. And I will say that that the back to, you know, I have a long view because I've been in it so long and I'm so old, but, you know, I just can remember when we used to have paper and I used to have HIM under me as an administrator when I was CIO. 
And I'll just tell you that as a physician and as administrator over that area, we didn't like writing notes on paper either. We just don't, you know, we want to do the caring and not have to worry about the administrative side of it. And so anything that can be done to lessen that. And I know most of us know the current environment, but the data is very clear. We were much less efficient when we were on paper and errors were higher. And so the technologies have helped the quality and our ability to understand populations and intervene in ways that we could never have done in the old days. And I think that that's, and I think importantly, we have to understand that everything I just said has only happened in the last 20 years. And so, you know, it's not like we knew how to put EHRs in because we had never done it. And I was one of the first people in at that time doing this work. And so we conceptualized what we thought that future should be like. And then we tried to implement it and we found out, oh shoot, now we got to evolve it and 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 iterate it to get better. And so I think we're really still in the infancy of that evolutionary process. And and clearly, we're in a better place with the functionality of Epic and, and some of the technologies that we have now, and then using with AI to take the burden off our providers. And I think back to what I mentioned earlier, we really have to understand that most of the frustration that we have in, in the provider side of healthcare is driven by the financial incentives that healthcare and the payment models. And so, you know, we are in this environment, but it's highly fragmented. I mean, so, I mean, I can, we have Medicaid in North Carolina has five and each of our clinics has five different managed care organizations that our administrators and doctors and everybody has to understand five different ways of measuring quality and documenting and things like that. Well, that just leads to fragmentation. And so I think that the tech that the that we have to understand that we live in those systems and that we're a byproduct of those, but and 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 that these technologies can help us overcome some of those. But these are also structural issues that we have to we have to work on those structural issues also because I'm not confident that technology can overcome some of the structural issues that lead to fragmentation and lead to the, frankly, the, the the lack of well-being for providers because they live in that crazy system and it doesn't make sense to them. And so that leads to burnout and is very unfortunate. I don't blame the technology, the EHR for that, because it's just being built to follow the different payment rules and the administrative rules that, that healthcare is in. And so I'm going upstream and how do we work on those issues to create a better environment for our providers, our nurses, and the folks? Because, you know, healthcare is a really great, I'm glad you're going back to medical school. Healthcare is really an unbelievably difficult profession, intellectually, emotionally, and physically. But it's also an incredibly rewarding profession, highly intelligent people that want to care for other humans. But then the systems and the environment sometimes that we're in don't help us do that to our fullest. And so technologies and then how do we design process to support our providers is really what we all need to be talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you have a, have, a, have a great hat to be able to help affect those changes, both from 
the work obviously you do at ECU, but also with AAMC. I did want to give you the opportunity to comment on, on any of that, because I know just a couple of months ago, you were you took up the mantle to, to lead the Council of Teaching Hospitals and Health Systems, which has a lot of sway and I think influence, especially given you know graduate medical education programs. We need to be building more of them to, to reduce the number of students who don't match, et cetera. Any, any commentary on kind of what you're focused on with the Council of Teaching Hospitals and Health Systems? Yeah, I would say similar to what I just discussed. First, I'd say, you know, working, I'm very honored to have been asked to be with them and working with them. And again, back my passion, academic organizations in the United States and our unique role. And I, I, I think it's just a very vital, important role for the health of our country, frankly. And so these are really important institutions, unique, great group of, of people to be able to work with. So I'm honored to do that. And then, you know, I would say similar to what I just said, you know, I think it's easy to start pointing at different groups inside healthcare and saying they're to blame. So it's EHR or it's administrators or it's the nursing. And it's really, I just don't view things that way. I think we really have to look at the integrated function and how we come together as a community of caregivers and providers to design the future. That's what our forefathers did. And so with the Council of Teaching Hospitals and being a dean and an administrator of large health systems, you know, I think a lot of the, my work and the work of the AANC is how do we integrate and bring these diverse groups inside healthcare and inside academic organizations to design future education systems, future care systems to drive value for our communities. And so that's what that's what we're working on, complex set of issues. You know, funding inside academic org organizations is highly complex and how we understand the unique missions of research, education, and delivery and how they are interconnected and how we propel each of them forward together as a dedicated group of professionals is really where I spend most of my time concentrating on it with the double AMC. Yeah, quite quite an agenda, I'm sure. Quite a quite a lot of work to get to get there, but glad you're working on it. I want to be respectful of your time, so I only had two other questions, if that's okay. So the first the first is as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. We like to fill in knowledge gaps. We, you know, whether that's individual videos or courses. If you could snap your fingers and and have a course or a video developed for any particular audience on any health topic, what would it be and why? Well, I think that I would probably have an overview of the healthcare marketplace. I find that people often work in side environments and don't really even understand how those environments work. And so back to, as I mentioned, how do these big systems and these big things work? But frankly, all of that happens based on the the financing of healthcare in the United States. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, and so I think really educating on a macro perspective, I'll just, as a hospital administrator, you know, I always find it interesting. I always say this, that the hospital administrator is the only professional in healthcare and in the United States that frankly runs a, an, an organization that doesn't operate in the free market because we have the obligation to see everyone regardless of their ability to pay. But then all of the inputs to that production are in the free market. So, and this is what's 
really hurting healthcare financials right now. Hospitals and delivery systems had their worst year in the history of the United States last year because input costs all went up. And so that puts extreme pressure on the system. And then, and then people, politicians, and others will complain of mergers, or doctors will complain. We don't, you know, we don't. We're now being employed or whatever. Well, I've never. I bought practices. I've sold practices. I've done all of that, and none of those changes happen because the local leader or that local practice administrator or the physician want to give up control or do it differently than they have been doing it before. They actually, the mergers and acquisitions are all being driven by macroeconomic forces, regulatory and payment systems. And so I think we have to understand those things. And those are the things that are driving consolidation and driving a lot of the dissatisfaction of healthcare. So I think understanding healthcare financing at a global level and then how it gets into delivery systems, because as I mentioned, delivery systems are the only ones that don't actually technology, insurance, physicians, doctors, nurses, they all operate in a free market, and but the hospital doesn't. And that's a real issue for local community hospitals. That's why, as you mentioned, in rural environments, that issue right there is what's leading to the instability and fragility of those very important institutions in those communities. And we take, you know, those are very serious set of issues. You know, if you're like we are here to improve the health and well-being of a region, and we have regions that are so remote that deliver one baby a day on average, so we don't make money on that, right? So if you go back to the financing of healthcare, we and from a business perspective, we don't make money. I have to have nurses, doctors, and folks to do that. But we do know that if we close that maternity unit in, in a few of those hospitals, that moms and babies would have to drive over an hour to deliver. And we know that more moms and babies would die if we close that. And so we make a decision, a financial decision to subsidize that care. And that doesn't get caught in any of the metrics of anything, but is part of being part of a mission-driven organization. But I think that that determination needs to happen not inside the delivery organizations. That's a community discussion. That's a state discussion, and that's a federal discussion. So what do, what do communities need and where should where should those things be? And then how do we finance those things to make sure that more people in these environments live healthy lives? Because they're really important people in those environments. So long-winded way to say macroeconomic financing of healthcare. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of the conversation we had on this podcast with Vivian Lee, who at the time was running Verily, but you probably know her well, wrote that great book, The Long Fix, which kind of, I think, introduced a lot of students to value-based versus fee-for-service and these important topics. You've already peppered the entire conversation with advice for, for students. I'd love to give you a dedicated question around what other advice would you like our listeners to, to take from you? And maybe it's advice that you already give your students at Brody. Yeah, I would say follow your passion. Don't listen to the people that say you can't make it. And we all have imposter syndrome. And so just, you know, if you have the passion and you're willing to work hard, just start 
start it and do it and be committed to do it. I, I always ask our students who in here was told that you'll never make it to medical school and every hand goes up. I mean, oh. and, you know, who was told don't go into medicine because, you know, like my story with my father, right? And so I think it's just you have to follow your own passions and your own desires and understand that it's a great profession with huge opportunity. It's one of the largest, it is the largest vertical segment of, of the country from a GDP perspective. There's huge opportunity in it. And and getting a technical degree such as an MD degree is a great way to create opportunity for yourself and, and do meaningful work. So that would be my advice. And, and then be open to the experience because you can do it and go into policy or you can do it and and, and take care of patients in a clinic in your hometown and and there and those are all really good things to do right so there's just no one right way and so it's just it's a great opportunity absolutely I'm, personally i'm i'm taking notes on that because you know i'm i'm a, i'm a med student as you know and so it resonates a lot of what you just said resonates with me my last question is there anything else you want to leave our audience with about to, to know about you about ecu wmc or healthcare in general well, I would just say back to the other, the only other advice I would give to students is, and importantly, you know, mental health is important. These are stressful fields. And, you know, I, I think we drive independence into physicians. So we just drive it all the time. But one of the first things we do when you get in the clinical environment, if there's, we, we treat and be um, basic life support, right? The first thing you do is call for help. And so, you know, I just think understanding that if you're struggling or you need help to be willing to ask for help, people want to help other people in healthcare. And so knowing that there are support and networks and capabilities and to always ask for help and don't struggle alone. These can be difficult pathways. And then and then for us at ECU Health and Brody School of Medicine, you know, we we are creating the model for rural healthcare by creating a trusted premier education and healthcare organization that's a regional-based delivery system and education system. And we have a great team of professionals doing that, multidisciplinary teams. And we anybody that wants to join us that wants to be creating a future for a great region that's beautiful in Eastern North Carolina. If you can get behind that mission, we welcome you. And so, because we are in the process of transforming healthcare for rural America to become that model. That's awesome. And yeah, I know we already have a number of students and faculty at, at Brody and ACU who, who, who learn by osmosis, hopefully listen to this podcast and are already contributing to your mission. So with that, Dr. Waldron, Thank you so much for taking the time, not only to be with us on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly, for the decades you've provided to the healthcare system in terms of raising line and strengthening it. Well, thank you so much, Shiv. I've really enjoyed the conversation and keep up the great work. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcasts and, and the advice you give really to students, to everyone, but to students. I, I just love the, the narrative. So thanks. Thanks a ton. I really appreciate that. And maybe one day I'll rotate through ECU and get to meet you in person. Definitely. Come on down. Awesome. With that, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. 
You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.